everybody. This is Xi Xiao. This is yet a new episode of Salesforce Word Podcast. I'm sitting with a returning guest. His name is James Mo. Hello, James. Hey, Xi. Good to see you again. Yeah, good to see your face. It's been almost two years, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had to backtrack there and decide how much time had actually passed since we last spoke. Yeah. Would you still would like to introduce yourself? You know, it's been quite a while. Sure. Yeah, I'm James Simone. Currently working at Salesforce as a senior software engineer. Between the time since we last spoke, I was running my own consulting company, then moved to another consulting company, going back to full time work there, and then made the move to Salesforce. And now I'm developing on the Salesforce platform for Salesforce employees internally, which、mm. is pretty exciting. So you had the role as the consultant. Both the solo developer, solo consultant, and also you joined the bigger company doing consultants as as a team, right? That's right. And now you are building a product inside Salesforce. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, the thing is that you have wared so many different roles, so that's perfect、uh, candidate for us to really talk about the topic of this episode. Yeah, one of my most favorite topics of all. Okay. So let's bring it up. It's TDD, the test-driven development. Do you remember when it was introduced at the very beginning? To me, I was introduced to test-driven development back in 2016 by an old colleague of mine who became a manager and mentor to me. I moved companies to work with him, and he gave me. The one of the most classic TDD books at the time, Ken Beck's Test Driven Development by Example, and that was really at the end of 2016, early 2017, a huge leap forward for me in terms of thinking about programming and how I thought about programming and how I thought about code in specific. That book is a really interesting example, taking it sometimes literally line. By line, for a company that is moving from tracking payments in one currency to tracking payments in multiple currencies, and so the example that Ken Beck writes about goes from just imagining currency as always being in U.S. dollars to what does it mean to take a payment in Swiss franc. Uh, or Australian dollars, and how do we represent this internally within our system so that we're accurately tracking the the price of things and the cost of things? And it's a it's a really mind blowing book. And again, I think one of the things that's so impressive about it is that he literally, in some cases, goes line by line. It's just very small changes that, through tests and Very clear articulation as to what he's thinking and and why he's doing certain things end up leading to a very big change in the system without that many lines of code, and I think it's very impressive. Yeah, I'll put that book into our show notes. Could you articulate a bit more? What's the difference? I mean, how did you think before, and to what really changed afterwards? So the. The thing that I always come back to on this front is more traditional engineering. And take, for example, something like building a bridge.、Mm-hmm. Before I read this book, I had never thought 
at this level of abstraction before. So I wasn't thinking about trying to find parallels in real life between the way that we do things in terms of creating features, fixing bugs, and the way that things are created in the real world, and in particular in the, in the real world of engineering. But for the people who don't know much about TDD, how do you introduce it? Yeah, so I mean, I'll, I'll go with Kent Beck's approach, which he refers to as the stoplight. And if you're not familiar with a stoplight, for whatever reason, we talk about the red-green refactor mm-hmm. approach, where red means that you have succeeded in writing a test that fails, a test that says that this thing that you expect to happen is not happening. Then the green part is doing the smallest possible amount of work, which could even just be hard coding a value somewhere in order to make that test pass. And then refactor is the taking a step back part of the approach where at that point, you are either free to write another failing test or you are free to do some cleanup on the code that you've produced. You might have introduced, for example, some duplication where you know that either other classes or other methods that you've written in the past might be possible to be reused. But again, because you're trying to do the simplest possible thing at the current moment, you just did that simple thing in order to get your test to pass. And now you have a chance to do cleanup. And then that cycle repeats where if you're done with refactoring or you don't need to refactor at that given time, you write the next test that's going to fail. And then you proceed in working in this way until you're done. That's a good explanation. The first time I hear the TDD, the most mind-blowing part is that we start from writing the test. We (laughs) don't have a product code at all. We always, always start writing the test and make it fails, which is the the first step that the red. That's right. I remember Robert C. Martin, Uncle Bob, when he heard about TDD, he was also, what is this absurd programming method? How do people really start writing uh, useless tests? And then he tried it out and multiple times we came together. And then he started to grasp the beauty of, of using TDD and the the flexibility and, you know, all those beneficial points from using TDD. Yeah. I think it's not easy to just listen to people and say, okay, TDD is good. And then you you really have to try it out. A lot of things are like embedded in the process. And then at some point you realize, okay, this is such a, a beautiful thing. We might want to use it in the future for a lot of projects. Yeah. And I think specifically in regards to Salesforce development, there are going to be cases where you can't use TDD, but those cases are fairly limited at this point Mm -hmm. in the platform's maturity and life cycle. And it does, I think, to some extent, come down to mentality about approaching this thing from the ground up. And again, I'm going to bring it back to the bridge analogy in terms of avoiding over-engineering, I think is the the biggest thing. Instead of building the bridge and then trying to prove that it works, if you are starting from the ground up and starting with the test itself, you frequently avoid something that might otherwise be very 
alluring, which is adding bells and whistles as you go, making methods that you may never use, making classes that are only going to be used once, whereas TDD sort of forces you to focus on the task at hand in a really direct way that produces results and and forces you to continue to produce results instead of thinking, maybe I should use an interface, maybe I should use an abstract class. It's much more concrete and that refactoring step then becomes a chance for you to fold in other code, older code, fix up the code that you're writing without the allure or the the temptation to give in to adding things that you can't use at that current moment. Let's say I am a developer. I'm just a solo developer. I have my open source project and doing it alone. I want to practice TDD. What kind of benefits would I get by practicing it? Yeah, I think the the clearest benefit to me, especially as somebody who has contributed quite a bit to open source over the past few years, is that you frequently find while writing tests an intuition about the next test that you need to write. It's a lot easier to think about both situations that you need to be aware of, both in the terms of negative tests and positive tests and different ways that the code that you've currently written, because you're starting so small, you start to have an intuition about these things in a very brief period of time about what you need to test next. And that's one of the things that I love the most about employing TDD as a solo developer when I'm doing my my open source work. Although I don't always do that solo, I do pair programming and sometimes mob programming in my open source work as well with groups of people. But always we are doing it through the lens of TDD because frequently, again, it informs what you need to think of next in terms of either additions that you need to make to the production or the next test that you need to write in order to prove that things aren't quite right as they stand currently. So you mean even if I have a very clear business requirement, what the application is going to be, still TDD can force me to start from small. Yeah. And in fact, that's a a famous Kent Beck quote as well in in that book. It's uh, start small or not at all. Even if I don't do TDD, I can also start small. I can force myself have the thinking. I start small and build small features. That's the same thing, isn't it? Even if I don't use TDD. It can be the same thing. I think the part that Uncle Bob actually talks about, which I think is helpful in terms of clarifying why TDD is in many cases easier to reason about than the alternative, which would be, if we're being generous, writing tests afterwards, sometimes not writing tests at all, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Uncle Bob in Clean Code talks about the importance of boundaries. It's chapter eight in the book, I believe. And when you approach either developing features or updating code for whatever reason, from the perspective of TDD, the boundary that you're established between the tests and your production level code oftentimes allow you to 
think about how the code that you're updating, for example, is going to work in new ways that weren't anticipated the first time around. Whereas if you are constantly in the process of just developing and updating production code, over time, you know, these systems start to intermingle and those boundaries become confused. In Salesforce, you know, you're very typically going to see this with DML between different objects, right? And as the automations start to interact with one another, frequently what ends up happening is something unexpected. Either you are you have things that you want to do in terms of updating accounts and their contacts, but also from the contact side, you want to update accounts in, in certain circumstances. And now you have this thing where the code is interacting in a way that it may not be immediately obvious in terms of what you are immediately working on, but you could have done something like accidentally introduced recursive DML into the, the mix. And in some cases, that's perfectly fine. And everything will, quote unquote, just work and continue to work. And maybe the only way that you would even know that you had done something like that would be the system working a little bit slower, right? But from the perspective of everybody on the outside looking in, it may be that it, again, just worked. But you also may have introduced different and very hard to trace bugs. When you start to work on something where you're like, oh, I'm just going to make a small change, and then you find that actually another test has started failing, that's where things start to get really interesting, right? Because mm -hmm. technically, you've done what you set out to achieve, but maybe you've done so at the expense of other functionality in the system. You've broken a, a contract or an expectation mm. elsewhere in the system in an unintended way. Yep. And TDD helps to remove those unintended side effects by forcing you to think about upfront and confront upfront the reality of how code interacts with other parts of the system. Hmm. So you mentioned the keyword boundary. So especially when I read the code written with the TDD, is that I see a lot of tests that really act as the boundaries. That's actually the crucial thing in our software project. When we touch something, we don't know whether it has side effect or not. Right. And so the tests then become your documentation as to what those possible side effects are. Hmm. And let's say for a developer, we join a team. That's a typical situation, right? The team could be already experienced with TDD, or maybe they are not, but you are. You want to introduce the TDD to, to the team. Have you experienced these kind of situations? Absolutely. And again, this goes back to working for consulting companies. Mm -hmm. It goes back to working uh, within larger teams in organizations. It's not always easy to be somebody practicing TDD by yourself when you work on a team, you're never going to be able to convince everybody of the things that you believe in, the, the quality that I personally know that mm. test-driven development can be responsible for in an organization. I have had both successes and notable failures in terms of introducing it to places. I know that it, it works for me. I know that 
at Salesforce, it really works for the team that I'm currently on. I know that there are a lot of teams, both internally within Salesforce and basically everywhere else in the world that don't use test-driven development. I mean, what if I join a team and they don't agree, not, not all of them agree to use TDD, can I still practice TDD with my code? Oh yeah. And I know many people in the Salesforce world who are the only people practicing TDD. So even if we're in the same team doing the same project, I can still use the TDD regardless. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. That's, that's a good information. Is it practical if I don't know too much about TDD? I've only, you know, I've only done projects as a hobby projects and then now it's kind of commercial project I want to join and I start to practice TDD. Is that feasible? Yeah, you can start again, start small. You can start from any point. You can start practicing TDD at any point. It could be that you know, a month from now, you want to say, hey, for this new feature or this this bug fix, I want to try it out. And I, I'm going to try it out by writing a test first, because that's the golden rule in test-driven development, that you're not allowed to touch the production level code until you have a failing test. Mm. And so you could start at any point, at any time, any season, right? Any day. As long as you write that failing test first, you, you are now practicing TDD and you can decide for yourself. I was talking to somebody yesterday who said, I tried TDD several times before it really took for me, before I got it, before I became excited about it. And I loved that this person said that to me. It was such a, a moment of humility, which I think is also a very important trait to have in a developer, somebody who's willing to be humble to admit mistake, that's a really powerful personality trait when we're working with code because we all make mistakes, right? And mm. either due to changes in the system, additional complexity, additional requirements, or just things that we never imagined the first time around, we're not perfect, we make mistakes. And TDD is a very forgiving framework in that sense because it allows you to capture those mistakes in new tests. So it's a, a mentality shift that you can start down that path at any point and allow for really powerful results. It can be the difference between saying, I, I made a terrible mistake and transforming that sentence into, I found a new test I have to write. <laughs> That's a good mindset. So, so okay, I, I got it. So I can practice TDD from small whenever, but uh, again, we are Salesforce developers. So is there anything that uh, doesn't fit into TDD that much? One of the things immediately coming into my mind is the running testing time. We are running it on the cloud. It's not local. And also we have the DML that actually really lengthening the time it took to run, especially if we have a large number of unit tests, then it gets really frustrating. First, I want to talk specifically about places where TDD is difficult or almost impossible to apply. And at this point on the platform, I would say that that's almost uniformly limited to Aura components. 
at this point. I think it's also a one of the big draws in addition to massively increased performance and ease of development experience in transforming Aura components into Lightning Web components where you can actually practice TDD through the JEST unit testing framework that Salesforce has. But when we talk about network transfer time and, and latency and how long tests take to run, you know, this really brings me back to the first time that you had me on the show to talk about mocking frameworks and mm-hmm. how it's important, again, to establish boundaries in your code. I, again, constantly practicing test-driven development in my own life, in my open source projects. Uh, it's very rare for me to have long-running tests. And I would classify long-running tests as tests that take longer than 100 milliseconds to run. I frequently run hundreds of tests in under a minute. I wouldn't be able to do the work that I do without the ability for my tests to run quickly. And so practicing TDD has allowed me to shift and hone my mindset as far as the Salesforce platform is concerned into more of a boundary level consideration. And again, this is going back to the first time that I Mm -hmm. I was on your show to talk to you about this stuff. But as far as boundaries are concerned, if the performance limitation is DML and things that involve the database, then that's my first order of business in terms of abstracting that away when it comes to running tests, because I'm not looking to write unit tests that validate that the Salesforce platform correctly inserts records, for example. That's I, I'm not trying to test the database, in other words. I'm trying mm-hmm. to test my code. Mm-hmm. And so while there are cases, like when you're developing within triggers, trigger handler frameworks, where you for sure are going to want to test DML, that's the equivalent of an integration test. It's not a real unit test. You're trying to test that changes propagate correctly through the system. Hmm. But the unit test is all about what's the smallest possible amount of code that I can test. Is it a single method? Is it a class being called? And in that context, TDD really shines, I think, on the Salesforce platform because the test running framework is so easy to use and to run through. Whether you're running a single test, whether you're running the entirety of the the Uh, test methods in a given test class. I think that it's actually quite pleasant. And again, it should be extremely quick in terms of running those tests. Mm. It's um, interesting to listen back to, again, what you mentioned in the previous episode we talked, which is the 69th episode, if I remember, the DMM marking. The point here is that uh, if you are practicing TDD, then you would want the test to be running fast. You want the test to be running fast. Yeah, you want yeah. because you're hitting the testing button so many times, right? You are doing it in the circle, and each time at least you hit them once. And this brings me to this kind of philosophical question. I mean, we find a new framework, the TDD, to do our development, and then we start to pay more attention to the test code quality. 
and which a lot of Salesforce developer didn't pay that much attention. Okay, the test can pass the 65 threshold. That's good. That's good enough. We, we can push to production and nobody really cares it, it anymore. But now you are telling me that I need to write a good test. The test should be fast. The code should be flexible, easy to maybe adjust in the future. And what if in the future the business requirement changes in the middle yeah. all of a sudden? And I have all these existing code, the testing code, should I change all of them somehow? You know, all these things are not easy to solve. I know there are books talking about how to write good test codes, like a really thick book. <laughs> yeah, we we can summarize those thick books, I, I okay. think. And again, this goes back to how I think that the best part about TDD is preventing over-architecting. Because what the situation that you're talking about happens frequently in mm -hmm. real life, right? Mm -hmm. Where you are now given a new requirement and it changes the system in a, a subtle way. And that subtlety involves dozens, if not hundreds of changes to your existing code. But if your tests are small, if the code that you are writing is produced through TDD frequently, it is small too. And even when you have to make large changes, then it all starts with adding that next test. And when it all starts with adding that next test and all of your other tests are still passing, you now have this incredible safety net as far as adding new functionality or changing the functionality of the system. Because now you know, as long as you're doing work and only the, the new test that you've written or tests that involve changes to functionality that you've already produced start to fail, as long as those are the only tests that are failing, you're safe. And so it's very easy to go back and forth between that green and red state while refactoring existing code when you have the safety net of good test coverage. Now, that's not always easy, right? We have uh, lots of people work with legacy code. Mm. You inherit code, right? And I think something that you were alluding to before is that as long as you have the appropriate level of code coverage, you're free to deploy. But code coverage is a very, very tricky and deceiving metric when it comes to code quality. Really, it's not related to code quality at all. Mm. A situation that my team ran into recently is that we performed a very large refactor of a class with hundreds and hundreds of lines of duplicated code. And we removed quite a bit of that code because it was all just copied and pasted together into different methods, but essentially it was doing the same thing. And because we had the tests, we felt confident about performing that refactoring. But what we missed is that there was actually a test that was not there, a test that should have been there, let's say. And it only became obvious when there started. we started having issues after performing this big refactoring. So we introduced a bug by doing this big refactoring. And the reason that we introduced it is because we had 
relied on the safety net of those tests, which if you are developing from the ground up, you should have a lot of confidence in. But in this case, because we had inherited this whole system, we made a mistake. We didn't realize that there was a, a missing test and we thought, okay, well, we've done the refactoring, all the tests are still passing, so we're good. And now we know. And so you, you build on that mental model too, as time goes on, where you start to think, well, what am I missing? And that was a good reminder for me. You know, it's, it's good to be at this seven years now and, and be reminded, hey, look, again, I'm, I make mistakes every day. We all make mistakes every day. I'm not perfect. And I find that the framework helps me to produce better code faster and write more code over time as a result. But that doesn't mean that it's going to prevent you from making mistakes. And I think it was a good reminder for me to be like, okay, well, yeah, next time that we do something like this, we have to be on the lookout for not only are all the tests passing at the end of this, but what's the quality of the, of the test that we have? Did we write these? Should we be looking for things that are missing from the existing tests that we have? Mm -hmm. So you mentioned uh, tests in Salesforce. Do you found it sometimes difficult to read the test code? Because for me, I do. A lot of times, especially a code written by somebody else who don't write the code as, in the same style as I do, I just found it so hard to really understand some test, test method. What does it really test? Well, that I think you say you said something very interesting there, which is that it's particularly hard to read code that you haven't written. Mm -hmm. and, and I actually think that this is a skill. This is a huge skill set. And for a lot of people, it's an underdeveloped piece of their, their tools for working together with other people. Because a lot of us are working alone right? Mm -hmm. Or we're used to working alone, we want to work alone. But as a result, if you're only ever reading the code that you've written, you're actually missing a crucial communicative piece in terms of how you think about code. And it, it's, like a, it's like going to the gym, basically. It's like exercise. The more that you read code that you haven't written, the easier it becomes, the more used to reading somebody else's code that you get. And something that I find that's really fascinating, whether it's reading a test that somebody else has written or reading production level code that they've written, is that frequently you start to see a voice, the voice of this other person, the author of the code. And I, I find now, again, from having inherited quite a bit of code from people, I... I know, even without checking source control in a lot of instances, who has written the code that I'm looking at, because there is a, a voice that starts to come through the more that you read somebody else's code and you start to recognize the patterns that they employ, the thought processes that they had, whether or not they leave comments in the code, for example, and test code frequently has comments in it as well, whether they're of high quality or, or still ring true today is always, you know, an interesting thing to discover. But for me, it's a process of discovery and it's something that I, I would highly recommend to others, even if your only outlet for doing so is 
via GitHub or something like that to read other people's test code, to try to have empathy and understanding for other people too, because it helps you as a developer to get inside somebody else's mind instead of thinking, you know, approaching it from a, a point of condescension. Like, how could somebody have written this code? I can't believe, obviously it doesn't work. It's, it's garbage. Mm. <laughs> but that, that you could just as easily say that about the code that you wrote yourself yesterday, you know? And so approaching reading code and practicing the reading of code from an empathetic mindset, I think helps you to start to expand the possibilities, understand why decisions were made before you you did something or before uh, another team did something. And even if you already know ways that you're going to improve upon that, that empathy helps a lot in terms of reading something and understanding it. Mm. Okay. Thanks a lot, James. Anything else you still want to add? Yeah, I would say, I just want to mention in particular, I, I think I've spoken at length now about the work uh, that my team does, but it, in particular, we also practice in addition to test-driven development, mob programming. And mob programming is a much more recent development and framework, you might say, within the programming world, where in addition to us writing the tests first, we're also only ever working on one thing at a time, and we work on it together as a group. So we have a number of engineers, we have a number of other people on our team, our product owner, our scrum lead, our engineering manager, and we're all on a, a video call for six plus hours a day together. And what we do is we practice working on features together, iteratively handing off to each other in very short increments of time. So we, every 15 minutes, we swap out who's sharing their screen. And again, we're practicing this through test-driven development, but something that I think that's really interesting with mob programming, and it touches on something that we were just talking about, is A, it forces you to read other people's code constantly because mm -hmm. you're on this call together and you're working collaboratively in that fashion. And B, it enables people to not only have a sense of community, even if you are working solo or would be working solo normally gives you the sense of community that then allows people to share their strengths and, and weaknesses together in a way that you know I'm, I'm sure you're you've heard this phrase before the sum is greater than the whole of its parts that is true in teams as well as math and i, I think that when we have a chance to work together collaboratively Frequently, the output that is produced in that kind of framework is greater than what you would see if everybody were just alone doing their own thing, even if in the ideal world they were alone doing their own thing with test-driven development. So I think that's an interesting thing to bring up. That there are, In addition to TDD, there are a lot of really interesting ways to share that experience together. And I think that those can be really powerful. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thanks, James. Good to have you back, and uh, thanks for coming to the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me again. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye.